The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We'll just all gather right here and look to the Word of God together as we're about to get into Revelation 13. Uh, so we're picking up where we left off two weeks ago when we went through Revelation 12. And just so you know, Revelation 12 and 13 actually go together. When John wrote this 2,000 years ago, he wasn't writing verse references. Mm, number three. And then he didn't write a verse break. Okay, I'm done with chapter 12. We'll go on to 13. He's probably writing on some animal skin or some scroll. And he just kept writing. And he broke it up uh, by visions and logical breaks in his prophecy. And so this is a vision that he received. So chapter 12 and 13 actually go together. And in this vision he had of the future of how things would end at the end of the tribulation there were four things signs that he saw in this one vision of four main characters the first one in revelation 12 was a woman that he saw in this vision and that was the nation of israel in the future actually throughout history but culminating in the future so the nation of israel in this vision in chapter 12 and then also in that vision he saw a great red dragon with seven heads and that was satan and especially what satan's going to do to Israel in the future during the time of the tribulation. And then in chapter 13, he continues on telling us what happened in this vision of the four signs that he saw. He saw the nation of Israel in the future, Satan in the future, and then there's two characters he introduces to us in chapter 13 that are going to be the main characters in the rest of the book of Revelation until Jesus returns, and that is the Antichrist. And the Antichrist's right-hand man is henchman, and that is the false prophet. So that's what chapter 13 is all about. It's of those two main characters, who they are and what they're going to do. Uh, and so I call this sermon in Revelation 13, the rise of Antichrist, because in Revelation 13, we get more detail about this coming person called the Antichrist in an exhaustive way with respect to Scripture in a way we've never seen before in Scripture. There are passages in the Bible that tell us a little bit here and there about what this coming world Antichrist is going to be like, but here we're given more detail than we've ever seen before. Uh, so we're going to get to those two main characters. But before we look at the coming Antichrist and what he's all about and the false prophet, as usual, we need to lay the groundwork out of the Old Testament because Revelation is a fulfillment of countless prophecies made in the Old Testament. So go to Daniel chapter 7 if you have your Bible. And much of Revelation 13 flows right out of Daniel chapter 7, as well as actually several other chapters in Daniel. If you do not have a, a good, comprehensive grasp of the Old Testament, Revelation is going to be hard to understand. Uh, so this is absolutely essential. Uh, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel was a prophet of God. He was taken as a prisoner away from his homeland down to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar and was imprisoned and ended up living in Babylon for about 50, 60 years. And God used him mightily in the pagan kingdom of Babylon where he became an advisor to pagan kings. And God used him also as a prophet. He probably also wrote scripture. And so this is the testimony of the life of Daniel. And God appeared to Daniel through visions and also through angels to tell Daniel a lot of stuff. But a lot of stuff he told Daniel was about the end of the world how the world was going to culminate, uh, what it was going to be like when the Messiah returns, and also, at the time of the end of the world, what the tribulation would be like and all about. 
And so that's the context of Daniel 7. Daniel has this dream, this vision from God that lays the foundation and complements John's vision thousands of years later in Revelation 13. By the way, Daniel was alive about 600 years before when he had the following vision. Let's go ahead and look at it. So as I read through Daniel 7 rather quickly, there are a few words and phrases I'm going to accentuate as I go through. That's kind of a key that those same phrases and that same imagery is going to end up in Revelation chapter 13. So it would make a huge difference. If you just tried to study Revelation 13 without looking at Daniel first versus reading Daniel first and then reading Revelation, your eyes will be opened. So let's look at it. Daniel 7, verse 2. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night. This is a vision from God. It was a prophecy of the throughout history culminating in the end of the age. And behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Okay, sea. The sea is what he sees in this vision. That is what John sees in his vision. A sea. The connotation of the sea throughout the Old Testament many times prophetically has to do with uh, that which is dark. Sometimes it's called the abyss. It has to do with evil, evil beings, Satan. It's kind of interesting that when God makes the new heavens and the new earth, there is no more sea. So the imagery used... Many times regarding the sea, 10 plus times uh, in the Old Testament, is it's a negative connotation, the sea. So he sees the great sea in his vision. Verse 3, and four great beasts were coming up out of the sea, and they were different from one another. Verse 4, the first was like a lion. Okay, that's key. He sees a being that is like a lion. That's used by John in Revelation 13. It was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet. We're going to find out later. This lion is a kingdom that existed in history. Uh, verse 5, and behold, another beast. A second one resembling a bear. So there was a lion and now there's this beast that looks like a bear. This also is a kingdom that existed in history. Some believe it was Medo-Persia during the time of da Daniel's older age. The bear, and it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth, and thus they uh, said to it, Arise, devour much meat. And so that's a, a kingdom that existed in Daniel's day, verse 6. So you got lion, you got bear, verse 6. After this, I kept looking, behold, another one, beast, like a leopard. So you've got three beasts coming up out of the water, out of the sea, lion, bear, leopard. John's going to have the same similar vision, a leopard. What's a leopard? Well, they're fast, they're quick, they're swift, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads. Dominion was given to it. That's another kingdom that existed in history. Uh, the leopard, these were all pagan kingdoms, evil kingdoms for the most part. They hated Israel. They persecuted God's people, led by their respective leaders. The leopard devoured and crushed, trampled down the remainder with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. Oh, sorry, uh, Look at verse 7. After this, I kept looking in the night visions and behold a fourth beast. Okay, so after the lion, bear, and the leopard, there's another beastly monster. It is different than all the other beasts. It is dreadful and terrifying, extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down. This is a kingdom. It's a future kingdom spearheaded by a specific individual, the Antichrist. Trampled down the remainder with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it. This one had ten horns. Ten horns. We're going to see that in Revelation 13. Verse 8. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another little 
another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. So one little horn rises up and supplants the other three horns. We know from Scripture in Daniel and Revelation, these horns represent kings, and the horns were ten kings. These are future kings. These are kings that will exist, rise to power during the time of the tribulation. This is yet future. This has not happened yet. This is not a bunch of Roman emperors. This is yet future. Uh, keep going. Uh, this future little horn who will be a king, which is the Antichrist, during the tribulation, verse 11, then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. So he's going to be very boastful and arrogant, the coming Antichrist. And I kept looking until the beast finally was slain. Yippee, hallelujah. And there's celebration. Uh, Daniel goes on, verse 15, As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me because of the vision that he had in his mind. He was distressed because he couldn't interpret it right away. What in the world? It's like nothing I've ever seen in my life. And he knew it meant something. Verse 16, As I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me, Daniel, and made known to me the interpretation of this vision that I had. Verse 17, These great beasts which are four in number are four kings who will arise from the earth. They were real kingdoms, historical kingdoms. Three of them are historical. Fourth one actually will go into the future. Verse 18, But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. That's good news. He does that all throughout chapter 7. He gives the bad news of what's going to come with the Antichrist and then boom, he gives another verse to encourage the saints. Good news. Uh, keep the eternal perspective in mind. Jesus wins in the end despite the horrible news that is yet coming. does that all throughout this chapter. Uh, verse 19, Daniel says, I desire to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast that was unique, heinous, powerful, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on his head and the other little horn that came up and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts and which was larger in appearance than its associates. And I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. This is going to be an evil man who hates believers and God's people. Verse 22, verse 21, I kept looking, uh, waging war, verse 22, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints or of believers of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. That's the good news. That is the end. That's where it all ends up, in good news. Verse 23, thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms. So it's not the Roman Empire of history. This is totally different. It hasn't happened yet. And there are just so many commentaries, probably countless commentaries that you read on Revelation where people are trying to speculate who these kings were and who the little horn was and all the way from, well, it was Pope's past or it was one of the Caesars or it was Caligula or it was Ronald Reagan or it was Gorbachev or it's Obama. No, has not happened yet. The fourth beast will be a kingdom. He will devour the whole earth. See, that's key in Revelation and in Daniel. Whoever this king is, he has universal power over the entire earth. Not just a country, not just the Middle East, not just Palestine, not just Babylon. This guy is unique. The entire earth. A monarch of planet earth. That's what's unique. That's why we know it hasn't happened yet. This has not been fulfilled. He's going to devour the whole earth, tread it down and crush it. Uh, as for the ten horns of this kingdom, ten kings will arise. The ten kings are ten... Uh, 
future kings who will reign and consolidate power in planet Earth in the Middle East somewhere. And from that consolidation of power, one of these ten kings is going to be the Antichrist. And the Antichrist is going to usurp the authority that was consolidated by these ten future kings. And he's going to remove three key guys who broker power. And he's going to consolidate all this power for himself in the future. That's what's going on here. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise and another will arise after them and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He's going to be different. Hasn't happened yet. He will speak out. Here's how some of the ways he's different. He will speak out against the Most High. He's going to blaspheme God in an unmitigated fashion like never seen before. And he's going to wear down the saints. That's believers of the highest one. And he will intend to get this. This is the future Antichrist. He will intend or he's going to try to make alterations in times and in law. He's going to try to. That is his intention. He might even pull it off for a short period of time. These inviolable laws that God has ordained from the beginning of creation. That's what it's talking about. He will probably try to mess with the calendar. I don't like seven days in a week. Because that's what the Bible says. That reflects creation. God created the world in six days and on the seventh he rested. And for all world history, for 6,000 years, universally, in every culture, every country, every people have known that a week consists of seven days. How coincidental that that's what the Bible says in the very beginning. God made everything. He is creator. We didn't evolve. He created it all in seven days. So that nagging reminder of who the true God is will be totally distasteful and disdainful to this coming Antichrist who's he's going to try to alter times like never before. He might even He's going to probably try to change the calendar, maybe even the days of the week. Amazing. And then there's other laws that he's going to try to change. Maybe he's going to try to redefine marriage. There's a novel concept, right? Next time you hear that debate on television, see if anybody talks about who invented marriage. You'll never hear it on television. God invented marriage. But that's what this guy is going to do. Things unprecedented and they will be given into his hand for See, he's going to be able to be powerful. He's got delegated authority. He'll be able to pull it off for three, three and a half years, a time, times and half a time, a time. That's one year times. That's two years, half a time. That's half a year, three and a half years at the end of the seven year tribulation, which John calls 1,260 days, uh, which John calls 42 months. It's all the same time period. The last three and a half years of the future tribulation, this Antichrist is going to reign supreme like nobody in the history of the world has ever done. And you don't need to fear if you're a believer because this is all in God's plan. God knows. God's warning us ahead of time. It's in Scripture. There's a plan. There's a strategy. There's an escape hatch to the Savior. So with that in mind, let's go to uh, Revelation 13. As Now that we've looked at the background of this coming Antichrist, what he's like, he's described as this heinous, ferocious beast, and that's what he is, and that's what he's going to be. Think about the, the most heinous, ferocious, vicious tyrants in all of world history. It's a short list, isn't it? You got Nebuchadnezzar, who got saved. We sometimes forget that. His testimonies in Daniel 4. The Stalin, responsible for the death of 20 million people plus. Then other minor ones, Pol Pot and others. Then, of course, Adolf Hitler. Vicious. Tyrant. Well, this coming Antichrist is going to be a towering figure casting a shadow over everybody who's ever come before him. So let's go ahead and look at the rise of the Antichrist. Uh, as John just described, 
what's going to what is about to happen in the next three and a half years is unbelievable it is unprecedented it is worldwide it is evil it is powered by satan himself because that's the whole point of revelation chapter 12 tells us what satan's involvement is uh and then it transitions now into chapter 13 satan is going to implement his plan it culminates revelation chapter 12 by the way culminated with this verse verse 17 in the future god is going to protect a huge chunk of the people of Israel. He's going to, God is going to protect, put an umbrella of protection for three and a half years over a large segment of the Jewish people in the future. They will come to embrace Jesus as their Messiah. They will be believers. They will be brought back intact as a nation, fulfilling all of these Old Testament promises. And for the last three and a half years, God's going to provide special protection for the majority of the nation of Israel and protect them out in the, the wilderness where they can't be harmed by the coming future Antichrist or Satan. Satan wants to devour and wipe out the Jews. He's been trying it since the time of Abraham. He is unsuccessful. But he's going to try with a vengeance like never before in the future. God's going to protect them. And so that's what Revelation 12 said. Satan, the dragon, is trying to kill the Jews in the future. God protects them. And so Satan becomes enraged because he can't kill these Jews. And that's verse 17. The dragon, Satan, was enraged with the woman. He was enraged with Israel. He was enraged with the Jews. He was enraged with the Hebrew people of God. This is in the future. It hasn't happened yet. So what does he do? So he went off. Satan goes off to make war to kill the rest of her offspring, the rest of the descendants of the Jews. Other believing Jews who aren't being protected in the desert. Well, who's that? Well, it's probably the two... Prophets of God in Revelation 11, they are Jews. And for three and a half years, they speak for God and are prophets for God. And Satan's going to try to kill them. And he won't be successful until the end of the three and a half years. And the other offspring of the woman that Satan goes after are probably the 144,000 Jews who will be raised up by God during that time. And it's interesting. God puts a seal on them. So we don't know if that's a seal. It's a seal of protection, but we don't know to what extent. Uh, but they're around and Satan is going to be going after them. And other, I think other offspring are people who are just believers. This could be maybe Gentile believers who have trusted in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, and are not in the desert being protected. Many of them are going to be martyrs and they're going to die. We're going to see that. So let's go ahead in chapter 13 now. As Satan now is going to make war with God's people in the last three and a half years. And whenever Satan wants to do something, he usually doesn't do it himself. He uses a puppet. He uses a pawn. He uses people. That's what he does, doesn't he? And that's his strategy. So when it says that Satan is going to make war with the saints, then if you look at chapter 13, verse 7, it says it was given to him, the Antichrist, to make war with the saints. There it is. The Antichrist will do the bidding of Satan. And then the Antichrist is actually going to delegate that authority to his false prophet to make war with the saints. So let's look at these two ghastly characters, the Antichrist and the false prophet in chapter 13. I'm just going to read through the first uh, ten verses that describes the Antichrist and just highlight a few points as we go talking about this coming future leader. A lot of Christians try to figure out all the you know this stuff, all this mysterious stuff of who he is and is he alive yet and what does he look like or did he already come into history and we just got to go with what's in Scripture. Uh, starting at verse 1, and he stood on the sand of the sea. That's Satan. Satan the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. He has authority over the seashore. And as Satan is standing there, says, uh, John, I saw a beast. Beast, that's a bad word. I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems. And on his heads were blasphemous names. Mocking God. Blasphemy is 
either denigrating God and mocking God or claiming yourself to be God. And probably both of those are true with this beast. Uh, so he's got seven heads. That's weird. The dragon also has seven heads. He's got ten horns. That speaks of power. He's got ten diadems or crowns. That speaks of royal, regal, ruling authority like a king. Verse 2, And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth uh, like the mouth of a lion. See, bear, leopard, lion, that's right out of Daniel 7. And what it means is that same satanic power that empowered those previous Gentile uh, wicked kingdoms is the same power that energizes the future coming Antichrist. It is Satan. It is satanic power. So he looks like a leopard, bear, and a lion, and the dragon, Satan, gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Satan energizes this guy. He is satanically empowered. That That is supernatural power, by the way. Verse 3, great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, killed, murdered, and his fatal wound was healed. So the coming Antichrist that's being described here, that is yet future, he's going to actually die. He's going to be killed. Later on in Revelation, it says he's going to be killed with the sword somehow. Maybe it's one of those two, maybe it's one of the two prophets that kills him or somebody else, just his enemy. And he actually gets killed and then he gets healed and comes back to life. That is supernatural power. It's actually amazing. And I saw uh, one of the, his heads, the beast's heads that had been slain and his fatal wound was healed, healed, therapeutic healing. This wasn't a magic trick. He got healed. He was slain. He was dead. As a result, verse 3, the whole earth was amazed. This guy died. We saw it. It was on CNN. I believe everything on television. It was true. The whole world was amazed by the beast. Not only are they amazed now, they fear him as a result. Verse 4, so they wor- and they worshiped the dragon who inspired him, empowered him. The dragon is Satan. Why? Because he gave his authority to the beast, the Antichrist, and they worship the beast too. So they worship the beast and Satan. To worship the beast, to worship the Antichrist, is to worship Satan. That's the same true today. If you worship a false god, you worship Satan. I don't care what the name of your god is. If it's Allah or whatever, or an idol, or some material possession. If you worship a false god, you ultimately worship Satan. And that's what's going on here. And they worship the beast saying, and get this, who is like the beast? It's a rhetorical question. Who is like the beast? He's come back from the dead. Who is like the beast? In their mind, in that day, in the future, the answer to this question, as far as they're concerned, is no one is like the beast. No one can die and come back to life again. And the Christian in the background, the believer is saying, oh, yes, there is. Jesus, my Savior. He's not just like the beast. He's greater than the beast. Who is like the beast, the end of verse 4, and who is able to make war? Who's able to wage war with him? He's powerful. Verse 5, and there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words. He's going to be a world ruler and world leader, and he's, he's going to be arrogant, pompous, condescending, obnoxious, loud, vociferous, eloquent, golden tongue, but totally enamored with self, arrogant. Notice there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words. The mouth that's given to him is God. That phrase, given to him, given to him, given to him. It, it's not his own inherent authority or power. Satan doesn't have any inherent authority or power. Did you know that Satan can only do what God allows him to do? We know that from the book of Job. 
He is vicious. He is wicked. He is evil. He is powerful, but he can only do what God allows him to do. Satan has authority, but it's authority on a leash. Aren't you thankful for that leash? And God is the one holding that leash. And that's what's going on here. He has this authority and whatever else it's given to him. It's given to him by God. This phrase given to him, given to him all throughout Revelation. Almost every single time it is in reference to God ordaining it. God is in charge. God is sovereign. We don't need to fear reading this chapter if you're a Christian because God is sovereign and totally in control. And I, as a matter of fact, it's kind of scary, but I'm glad to know what the future holds, aren't you? I'm actually afraid of not knowing the future. I am encouraged to know the future. God has revealed the future to us. I know the future. It's not because I'm a prophet or a psychic or I read fortune cookies. It's because God has told us the future. It's amazing in, in graphic detail. That is the privilege of a believer who has scripture. And the Holy Spirit who teaches us. It's given to him a great mouth, speaking, uh, get this, he was arrogant, words, blaspheming, and authority to act for 42 months uh, was given to him. So he's going to reign for three and a half years with this power, verse 6. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme God's name and God's tabernacle, which refers to heaven and all that is in heaven and all those who live in heaven, angels and believers. He's a mocker. He hates Christians. Uh, verse 7, it was given to him to make war with the saints. He's fulfilling Satan's goal here. He wants to kill believers during that time and to overcome them. And authority, and little does he know, maybe he does know, that Christians are overcomers. We've already been told that by Jesus, right? If you know Jesus, you're an overcomer. And Satan's going to try to overcome overcomers. Oh, maybe you can on an earthly, short-time level, but you can't eternally overcome a believer. We are more than conquerors in Christ. Uh, so he goes on, he wants to make war with believers, uh, given to him to make war with the saints to overcome them. And authority over every tribe, people, tongue, and nation was given to him. This is unprecedented. This guy rules the entire world. Nebuchadnezzar didn't rule the entire world. Hitler didn't. He will. Every nation. Verse 8, and all who dwell on the earth, earth dwellers, earth dwellers. These are rebels. These are future unbelieving people in the tribulation. They're called earth dwellers. Heaven, earth is their home. That's why they're called earth dwellers. They will worship the Antichrist. Everyone whose name has not been written in the uh, from the found has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life. God has a book of life. It's an eternal book of life. It's a mystery, and God has written names in the book of life. And if your name is written in the book of life, you are going to heaven. You are elect. You will be saved in history. Your name cannot be erased from the book of life. And there are names that are not written in the book of life, that were written there before the foundation of the world. Unbelievers' names are not written in the book of life. It's a mystery of how that works. God is in charge. He's ultimately sovereign. It all has to do with your relationship to Jesus Christ. Verse 9, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and faith of the saints. So let's go ahead and look at just some of the highlights here, 1 through 10. A couple, three main points I want to make about this coming Antichrist. Uh, First of all, what he's like, and that's his portrait, letter A, his portrait. Uh, It says that he has seven heads, verse 1. Seven heads. That is ghastly, that is beastly. The Antichrist, the beast of the sea. His portrait, he has seven heads. Seven does speak of completeness, so he's the incarnation of all of evil of all of world history, like the seven kingdoms. Uh, there's, he has seven heads like the dragon, the great red dragon. Satan has seven heads, and he gets his power from Satan. 
We saw last time in Revelation 12 that these seven heads represent seven kings or seven kingdoms. And we know from Daniel they correspond to these Gentile kingdoms throughout history. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and then a future coming kingdom that really encapsulates all these throughout history. So that's the significance of the seven heads. The Antichrist is going to be the culmination of a world history of a series of evil world rulers. And there's continuity there. They're all empowered and energized by Satan himself. Hence the seven heads. Uh, This beast also has ten horns. Daniel says he has ten horns. The horns speak of power. Uh, These ten horns are ten kings. So the Antichrist is going to be related to ten future kings. He's going to be buddies with them probably. Schmooze with these guys. Until he gets in a position where he, like a mobster, and he's in the mafia, and he's going to hit some guys and take them out, and three of them in particular, and boom, that allows him to rise up like the dawn of his age, where he's going to consolidate and take power. But those ten horns are actually ten future kings, ten real human beings. Then he's got ten crowns, ten crowns on the ten horns, and that's regal authority, ruling authority. These ten future kings have a delegated authority they got from God to rule on earth for a short period of time. And so the Antichrist is going to usurp that ruling authority and consolidate it all for himself so that he will be the sole leader of planet earth. He's described as leopard, bear, and lion. And again, that's intentional to take us back to Daniel 7 to see the connection there. Uh, we referred to number five that he has a fatal wound. This fatal wound will be mentioned two or three times in the book of Revelation as we go on. There's going to be a scar there. Did you know Jesus still has the scars? And this future Antichrist is going to have a scar where he got healed. He's trying to copy, mimic, and be a pseudo to everything that Jesus did. The fact that he comes back to life is a fall. It's a pseudo-resurrection. It's a real coming back to life. It is a real resurrection, but it is a counterfeit to what Jesus does for sinners. Everything the Antichrist does and his false prophet Just about everything is for the sole purpose of counterfeiting everything Jesus and the Father have done to accomplish salvation. And here coming back to life, is it's a counterfeit. It's real, but it's for the purpose of trying to deceive the world. It's a fatal wound. Uh, Verse 3 says that his head is going to be slain, wherever that wound is. Uh, Scarface, maybe they'll call him. 13.3 and 13.12 say that his fatal wound was healed. This is literal. This is not allegorical. This guy will die, will come back to life. Uh, Verse uh, 14, uh, the wound of the sword, and then he came to life. That's that same phrase, came to life, is the same word used of Jesus' resurrection. He came to life earlier in Revelation. So that's the portrait of this Antichrist. Well, what about his power? Uh, Well, he has satanic strength. Satanic strength, we know that because the dragon gives him power. Satan gives him power. That is supernatural power. It's unprecedented uh, like never before. So he has amazing supernatural power. With his power, he's going to make war. It's worldwide war against unbelievers. Uh, By the way, it's satanic. Uh, He is utterly vile, this coming Antichrist. There will be nothing good about him. He will be utterly wicked, 2 Thessalonians calls him the man of lawlessness, of absolute utter sin and no conscience. And that's why he can do what he can do. He is incarnate evil, this coming Antichrist, satanically energized. And that's why people scream out and say, who is like the beast? We've never seen anybody this heinous, this evil, or actually some of them are going to say, this great, as they seek to worship him. 
Uh, this coming world antichrist not only have satanic strength, but he's going to be a totalitarian ruler. So he'll have totalitarian rule. That means he'll have sole authority over planet Earth. Boy, how many kings throughout history have desired to have that and actually tried to have that? Hitler wanted to have that. He wanted to be the sole ruler of planet Earth. Nobody's been able to pull it off yet, but this guy will for a short time, for three and a half years. Totalitarian rule. He, he is the man. He will be the monarch. He will be a tyrant, but he will be a monarch. What he says goes. And basically, he's accountable to nobody except Satan himself. So he'll have sole power. He will subdue other kings, says the book of Daniel, chapter 7. So he's satanic, totalitarian rule. He's got unprecedented authority as a result. There's never been a king like him. Unprecedented authority and that his, his reign is universal. We saw that over every nation, every tribe, every people, every tongue. He'll be a world ruler. Daniel 7.23 says he will rule over, quote, the whole earth. This hasn't happened in history. That didn't happen with any of the kings of Rome. The good news in number four is that he has all this power and reign, but it's limited reign. Remember, he's on a leash. God has him on a defined leash. He's limited in how he'll reign uh, in a few ways. He's, he's limited by the duration of his reign. It's only 42 months, three and a half years. God won't allow it to go beyond that. Uh, he's limited in that he won't be able to hurt the uh, two witnesses for three and a half years. He's limited in that he won't be able to hurt a lot of the Jews that God saves in the desert. He's limited in that uh, believers don't need to fear the one who can destroy the body because believers only need to fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell, as Jesus said. So maybe he can kill believers physically. He can't separate them eternally from God in the future. So he is limited. That's good. And he's also limited because he's going to end up being thrown into the eternal lake of fire to burn forever away from all people for all time. So his time is coming. So that's his power. And then there's his purpose. What does he exist for? Why does the Antichrist come? What's he trying to accomplish? Well, number one, he works for Satan. He will do the bidding of Satan. He will make war on behalf of Satan against the seed of the women and against believers. He will also do the bidding of Satan and that he'll get people to worship Satan. Uh, what else will he do? Well, he'll torment the Jews. 1217, we saw that. Satan wants to torment the seed of the women. That's Jews. Jesus mentioned this in Matthew 24. The Antichrist, he performs the abomination of desolation. That's in a Jewish context. That is mocking and tormenting and persecuting Jewish people. So he will have a particular disdain and disgust for the Jewish race. Uh, he will per Number three, he will persecute the saints. He's just other believers. Any believer he can find, he's going to persecute them. He's going to make war against them. Uh, number four, he's going to use people. He's going to use unbelievers as pawns, earth dwellers. He will use earth dwellers for his purposes. Maybe to be informants towards believers during that time. Notice in chapter 13 when it says that he will make war with the saints and it never says the church. It doesn't say Christians because I believe the church and Christians aren't around during the time of the seven-year tri seven tribulation. I believe that as a Christian and a part of the body of Christ, I will be raptured before this time comes. That's the promise of Revelation 3.10 and 1 Thessalonians 4. It's a great truth. But there will be believers during that time. 
Uh, and then finally, uh, his purpose will be for God's glory. I mean, just it's amazing if you think about all the horrible things he does and who he is. And the bloodshed that he wreaks on planet Earth. This is all under God's purview of God's plan. God is in charge. God is, in, God is sovereign. God is going to use all this. God is going to use this horrible time to usher in the glorious coming of Jesus Christ, the deliverer and the King of kings and Lord of lords. So God is in charge. That's why I said in Daniel 7... It talks all, it gives bad news and then every once in a while it gives the good news of what God is going to do that's great in the end. It ends with good news. So that is the coming Antichrist who is yet future. We don't know who he is. We don't know his name. As a matter of fact, I believe as a Christian, I won't even be around. But I do pray on behalf of saints in the future and thank God that scripture is still going to be around for those saints and they will be able to resort to scripture to read and to understand and to know what to do. This is God's warning book for them. This will help the saints in the future. As God had scripture for Daniel when he was imprisoned in Babylon and he found nourishment and solace and direction from what the scriptures predicted about these horrible times in his day under Nebuchadnezzar. So that's the Antichrist. Let's go on to number two, and that is his henchman, the false prophet. The false prophet. Uh, pick up at verse 11. So after the Antichrist is described, there's another beast. He's a lesser beast, but he's still beastly. Verse 11, and I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, not the sea, in the Old Testament, the earth was lesser in terms of power and influence and wickedness than the sea. So he's a lesser being than the Antichrist in authority. Coming up out of the earth, he had two horns like a lamb. He is a counterfeit Messiah. He is a religious guru. He's a lamb. He's, but he spoke like a dragon. He spoke satanically. Uh, this false prophet... Verse 12, he exercises all the authority of the first beast or the Antichrist in the presence of the Antichrist. He will make the earth and all those who dwell in it worship the first beast or the Antichrist whose fatal wound was healed. And this false prophet, he performs great signs or great miracles so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. Wow, amazing. He can do miracles. Verse 14, he dece as a result, he deceives those who dwell on the earth. He will deceive people because he can do miracles because of his signs, which have been given to him by God to perform in the presence of the Antichrist. And he's going to tell those who dwell on the earth, earth dwellers, to make an image or literally a statue to the Antichrist who had the wound of the sword, yet has come to life or was resurrected. And there was given to him, this false prophet, the ability to give breath to the statue of the beast in order that the statue of the beast might even come to life and speak. Wow. And cause as many as do not worship the statue or the image of the beast to be killed or murdered. Verse 16, and he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand and on their forehead, literally a stamp emblazoned literally into their skin. They're going to be branded like animals, but these people will willingly embrace that on the right hand and on the forehead of who they belong to, who they give their allegiance to proudly. They're going to have a mark on the hand and on the forehead and he, uh, and he provides that no one should be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark on the hand. That's your credit card in the future or your forehead. Please go ahead, scan me Shing! in the grocery store. The name of the beast. What is this mark? Well, the, the mark is the name of the beast. That is his name. Whoever he is. And it's the number, even the number of his name. That's the literal Greek. The mark is the name of the, the beast, even the number of his name. And in ancient uh, times, and even in the Greek language, in the New Testament Greek, Greek letters 
stood for numbers. And Greek numbers stood for letters at times. And that was true in John's day. Verse 18, so here is wisdom. Let him who has an understanding calculate the number of the beast. This is talking about future saints in the time of the tribulation. They are told by God at that time, okay, everybody knows the number. It is 666. Calculate it, add it up, boom. That reveals his name, who he is, so the believers in the future can know exactly who the Antichrist is and they will not commit to him and they will lose their life for it. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding. Well, who has understanding? Well, it's not us right now. This hasn't been revealed yet. Daniel chapter 12, verse 10 says that in the future, at the time of the tribulation or at the time of the end, God is going to give wisdom, supernatural understanding to those who live in that day. And I believe part of that wisdom is so that they can discern what the 666 means and it reveals who the coming world leader is. So if you're trying to figure out 666 and you turn it upside down and in the mirror and upside down and all that stuff and you realize, oh, this is uh, some, you know, pope or Roman ruler or, as I said, Gorbachev or pick, take your pick. That's not God's intention here. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for the number is that of a man. Six, six, six. So just briefly and real quickly, just highlight some things about this coming false prophet the beast from the earth well his portrait what is he like well he's a religious guru he is religious chapter 16 and verse 13 is actually called a false prophet so he's a religious guy probably wears a robe or whatever performs religious services talks like a religious guy maybe he's got a collar on or whatever his religious garb is he's going to be the religious guy in all this and the antichrist isn't going to necessarily like religion but he's going to use religion for his good and that, did you know that's what Satan is? Did you know that Satan is not an atheist? Satan uses religion. He's doing it today. He's going to do that in the future. So the false prophet is a religious guru. He's a lamb on the outside. So he appears, he comes across as um, calm, appealing, approachable on the outside. On the inside, he's a ravenous wolf. Or dragon, that's number three. He's a dragon on the inside, says 13 verse 11. Dragon meaning he's empowered by Satan. He is satanic. He is deceptive. It's not that he's loud, but he's deceptive. He is alluring. He is appealing. He is subtle. And he's going to be convincing because he's going to deceive the entire world, says 13 verse 14. That's the coming false prophet. Religious false prophets, they're the most dangerous of all. Because they got a lot of truth. And having a lot of truth is very dangerous if you don't have all the truth. Uh, what about his power? Well, he's going to be satanically inspired. Verse 12 of chapter 13 says that the false prophet exercises authority of the first beast. So he has all the authority uh, of the Antichrist and Satan himself. Uh, verse 2, he will have universal rule or reign over the earth. And that's delegated authority. Verse uh, Number 3, he will have supernatural ability. Verse 13 says he's going to be able to perform signs. That's John's word for miracle. Real miracles. Isn't that scary? A false prophet who can do miracles. These are not tricks. This isn't a magic show. These are real, supernatural, satanic miracles. Even calling real fire down from heaven. That's scary. But that's going to convince a lot of people because that's what Revelation goes on to say. All these people are going to follow him because he does do miracles. Unprecedented miracles, as a matter of fact. Well, what about his purpose, this false prophet? He also is on a leash, by the way, by God, even a shorter leash than the Antichrist. His purpose, well, he, he just seeks to empower the Antichrist. He works for the Antichrist. He's on the payroll of the Antichrist. And he's a doer. 
He's doing all these actions. He is implementing the plan of the Antichrist. And verse 12 says he's just trying to get everybody to worship the Antichrist. That's his main goal. And he's going to do it by coercion if he has to. Fear, mongering, religion, deception, the threat of death even. Empower the Antichrist. What else does, is his purpose? Number two is he seeks to control the masses. He's trying to control all of planet Earth. And he actually is successful in doing that, controlling the masses. He, verse 14 says he's telling them. He's commanding the whole world at that time. Here is a decree you must obey. Verse 16 says he causes all on earth. Another decree that needs to be universally obeyed. Incredible authority. So he needs to control the masses. Well, how do you control the masses? Well, there's some things you gotta do. You gotta, you gotta control the, what they believe, their religion. Every human being is made as a religious being. He's gonna control the religion of the world. He's gonna invent a religion. And people are gonna be impressed and they're gonna follow. So he's gonna, number three, he's gonna regulate religion. He's gonna tell them where they worship, how they worship, who they worship. They must make an image. They must worship that image. They must bow down to the image as in Daniel chapter three. And if you don't bow down to the image, you will die. Coercion of religion. It's horrible. And then number four, he's going to kill believers. Uh, scratch the un in your notes there. He's going to kill believers. That's what Satan wanted to do. Kill believers, kill the Jews. And he's going to pull that off. And if you don't have a mark on the hand or on the forehead and they find you and you've been informed upon, they will kill you. And they will kill you with the sword. And many believers at the time will be beheaded, killed, slaughtered, murdered because of their faith in Jesus. And then Revelation 20 says this, in the future, at the end of the tribulation, just before the glorious millennium, John sees another vision and I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image. And they did not receive the mark upon their forehead or upon their hand. And they came to life. They were resurrected and they reigned with Christ for 1,000 years. Isn't that cool? There's the great promise. So they're going to be killed, but they're going to reign with Christ. They are overcomers. And then finally, how's he going to pull this off if you want to control the masses? Well, you've got to deal with their religion, and you also got to deal with their money, their finances, and their possession. And so that's number five. He's going to implement socialism. And I'm not kidding. Just a quick lesson in political science. A theocracy, that's God owns everything. That's theocracy. That was the Old Testament under the theocratic. God owns everything. Theocracy. Democracy. The people are in control, make the laws. Theocracy, God owns everything. Democracy, people own everything. Tyranny or slash socialism, slash Marxism, slash communism, and that's the government owns everything. They control everything. They make the laws. They tell you what you can do, how much you can have, how much you have to be taxed, what you're allowed to do, what religion you can do, where you can worship, how you can worship, uh, and this is the future. And we're going to see this explicitly in Revelation 17 and 18. Socialism. Marxism, whatever you want to call it, tyranny of one governmental figure, the Antichrist, who's going to control everything about people's lives, including their religion and their money. Kind of scary, but there's encouragement in the book of Revelation because in answer to that question, who is able to overcome the beast? We as believers know Jesus Christ. Not only can, but he will. Amen? And we look forward to that great... Great, glorious time. And even in this lifetime, if you know Jesus Christ, the Scriptures say that you are right now an overcomer. Right now. Because you've overcome sin, death, hell, the devil, the world. And you know God personally through Jesus Christ. That is a glorious truth. Focus on that truth. 
And God will bless you as a result. Let's go ahead and pray before we go into one more song and then our, our communion. Father, we do thank you for our time together. We thank you for visitors that you brought to us during the Christmas season. Thank you that we could gather together as a church. Thank you for the Word of God, Scripture. All of it is profitable that we're supposed to use to be edified, to be taught, to be rebuked, to be encouraged with, to be fed by, and also to implement. So God, help us to implement in a practical way the truths of Revelation 13, beginning with allowing it to adjust, amend, change the way we think about the future and even now and about evil so that we're in sync with you, God, with your perspective. What a difference that will make on our thought life, our emotions, and our standing in this world. We give you the glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650 630 0009.